As you open with me to Romans chapter 8 this morning, let me tell you a quick little story. <clears throat> Saw out in the hallway a distraught four-year-old one, one Sunday morning, and um, so I, I asked him, I said, you know, uh, what's wrong? Some, something is obviously wrong. And he said, my life is going to be miserable. And so, I mean, that's a life-wrenching statement. So I kind of got down on his level and, and I said, what's about to happen? What, what's going on? And he said, mommy's going to have a girl. And I tried to, you know, keep as much empathy as I possibly could keep. You know, thinking about that, and I said, oh, man, the worst. He said, yeah. And I said, you know, but maybe it won't be so bad because, you know, I bet you're going to be one of the best big brothers the world's ever seen. But as I, I just thought about that statement for a little bit. You know, obviously none of us expect a four-year-old to give us a lot of wisdom on who or what should manage our homes or anything like that, but I wondered, I said, so much of the times we're just like he it was, and that is we want other people, we think we'll be most happy if other people are just like us. We want another boy, or we want another girl just like us, and that's going to make us happy. And we talked about this last week, we, we think that if we could get one another to be the best you can be, then then you will be happy. But the best of man is only man at best. Wouldn't it be better if we could get one another not to be like us, but if we could become like Christ? Far better, far superior, and yet we somehow in our minds... As sinful as we are, often think it would be better for people to be just like us. No, 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 no. Be far better if we were like Christ. Now, I just want to take you back, review real quick with you. You know, that was God's design from the beginning. God's design from the beginning. Look, I know I'm going to get to Romans 8, but if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27... God's design from the beginning, and here you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's referred to as God said, let us. The us, it's plural, the three persons of the Godhead. Genesis 1.26 said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God's design was that we, male and female, would be made in his image. Now, if you know the creation story, you know God's the creator of heaven and earth. So you start thinking about all the creatures that have already entered heaven ahead of us. And there are some mentioned here. And sometimes we don't think about these heavenly realms 
and how they exist. But God's design was that not on earth and then from earth to heaven would there be any creature that bore his image except you and me. Man, male and female. This part of creation will bear his image. And then, of course, Adam and Eve sinned, and he kicked them out of the garden, away from the tree of life, away from possibility of going to heaven, except through Christ. So if we have obscured the image of God through sin, that's why, as sinners, we want people to be like us, make us feel good. You're just like me, a sinner. God said, no, 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 I, I want to remedy that situation. Because of his love, now let's get to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 29. Because of his love, it says, he, those whom he foreknew. It's a biblical term for love. For if you knew, Adam knew his wife, means he loved his wife. To forelove meant those whom he foreloved, he predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God says, my plan has been, I have predetermined to get you back to the state I had designed for you. That is that you bear my image. My love for you is so great that I want to conform you to the image of Christ again. I want you to bear that image. And I want you to bring that image into the glories of heaven. You're the creature I want to adore and love. You're the creature I want to declare my bride. And for you to be my bride without spot or blemish, you need to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God wants for us. We don't need to forget it. We need to get there. That was God's plan B. Plan A, we were created in that image. We sinned, obscured that image. Plan B, let's, you know, it's been determined that we need to be in God's image. You hear sometimes people say, you need to seek your best life now. You need to be true to yourself. You need to be the best you can be. All false teaching from the devil. Forget it. You need to be like Christ. Not the best you can be. Not true to your sinful self. We need to be conformed to the image of of Christ. That's God's predetermined plan for his people. And he's going to make that work. And as we've been singing about, he's going to make that work through love. It's called the spirit of adoption. So I want to love you. I want to adopt you. I want to bring you into my family. We saw that in Romans 8 verse 15. He takes it further. That I want to conform you to the image of my son, uh, continuing in verse 29, so that he would be the first among, circle those last two words, many brethren. God wants you to have family resemblance so that you are declared brethren. You're my brothers and sisters. Christ being the firstborn, dying to take care of our sins, rising to take care of our resurrection, he says, let me be the first to enter into heaven in the image of God. The first, you follow me, conformed to my image. I want many brethren around the throne in the glories of heaven 
uh, worshiping, serving, ministering for God over all the rest of creation that bear my image. That's God's plan for us. The conformity of many to the image of Christ. Now, how does he do that? He does that through love. He does that by loving us. Now, I want you to think. This is, uh, we were talking about love a good bit. God loves Christ. God the Father loves God the Son. He equally loves you and me just as much. There's times his love is so described as as though it's even more, though that couldn't be possible, that he loves us more than he loves God the Son. But he equally loves us as much as he does God the Son. And I think the proof of that is verse 32. And that's where I really want to spend our time this morning. Catch this verse, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let's think about the love of God as it's found there in that passage, first of all, this suffering love of God from the phrase, He did not spare His own Son. He who did not spare His own Son. It's presented in the sense like, whoa, He didn't spare His own Son. I mean, it's almost unbelievable the way it's presented to us. Um, Why? Because it's natural for us to spare our own children. Um, You know that. Any of you who had children or have been around children, especially newborns, and hopefully the, the choice families having a baby right now. You know, as soon as you have that child, especially your first child, you kind of get over it a little bit with the second or third and fourth. But, you know, that first child's in the, ba- in the crib. You lay it down, and it just has to whimper. Oh, whoa, 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 what's that, what's that? You know, and you rush over there, and your intent is to spare that child anything. You don't want that child to be crying You don't want that child to to somehow be in pain or wanting to communicate, and you're not there to see what the message is. You're constantly trying to spare that child. And as that child grows up, you still want to spare the child. And so you have uh, those awkward conversations about sex and drugs and alcohol and temptations and laziness and um, pride and arrogance and all of these things you, you constantly are talking to your kids about because you want to spare them the consequences of pain and agony. You're constantly teaching and praying and speaking with because you want to spare them the consequences of sin. He who did not spare his own son. See, that's really an unnatural behavior on the part of a father or a mother to not spare their child. We know what it is to spare and we want to spare. And you stop and you think about that and meditate on it for a while and you think, you know, God obviously had this as a plan. When Christ came to earth, you know the story of Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. Christ was not the one who was spared. He was brought to this this city that was full of people, and there was no place for him to be born. And so they say, well, you can 
have your baby over there and lay him in a manger. I am confident there was no hand sanitizer dispenser on the wall. And they didn't have those sanitized wipes, you know, out there, Mary wasn't scrubbing the manger. Nobody probably washed the straw, cleaned it off. Christ wasn't spared. He came to crowded, dirty spot, and he was born there. When God could have had him somewhere else, obviously. And then, before he's even two years old, mom and dad have to pick him up in the night. And you can imagine them covering him up, even suffocating him, because he cannot cry while they're running their way to Egypt, because Herod's trying to kill all the babies, and especially him. So he's running for his life. Even before he can speak, God didn't spare Christ. He didn't have the kind of birth and life that you and I have. And then as he, you know, obviously grew up, uh, a carpenter's son begins his ministry out in the wilderness, temptation. You don't see any sparing there. As he walks from city to city, preaching and teaching, he didn't have the warmth of a wife or his own home. Wasn't spared a lot of the hardships of life. And then obviously as he went to the cross, he was scourged, whipped, hanging on the cross, stripped in great agony, not spared again. Over and over as you look at the life of Christ, you see this verse illustrated. He who did not spare his own son. It seems even more emphatic to me when I I hear God the Father speak about our sparing. Look over at Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Here's a statement God the Father is making about what, about what should be very natural for God after the passage that uh, Rob Wright referred to on robbing God. He makes this statement about those who do obey and honor God and those who don't. Malachi 3, verse 16 says, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention, and he heard it, and, he, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And notice this awesome statement. God says, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepared my own possession, and I will spare them. As a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. So God says, I will distinguish between the bad and the good, between those who fear me, those who don't, those who serve me, those who don't. I write it down. I put the righteous in a book of remembrance. I keep up with those people because those people I intend to spare. Interesting, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son tells us, I'm good at sparing. And I want to spare my family. And I know who are righteous and who are not. I know that Christ is without sin. He did everything on earth 
without sin. He is spotless, Lamb of God. And yet God did not spare him when that would have been his natural course, just as it was, just as it is ours. You know, and then, then Jesus cries out for sparing. When he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and there's this pressure of knowing he's about to go to the cross and not only go to the cross and the agony of the cross, but to bear the sins of the world on his shoulder, in his flesh, as he knows all of that is coming upon him. Uh, the scripture says that, call it what you want, pressure, stress, anxiety is pouring through his body in such a way that he's sweating what looks to be drops of blood. And in that pressure, he cries out, Father, you can do all things if it's your will. Spare me. Let this cup pass from me. No one could pray a more perfect prayer, yet not my will, but your will be done. So even in that cry, it was sinless, righteous prayer. And God does not spare his son. I don't know about you, but that, that, and I think about that, that's, that had to be tough, both for God the Father and for God's Son. Did not spare. You know, why, why would they do that? And that's where Romans 8, 32 continues to take us. You, you go from that that agony of not sparing his own, but goes one step beyond. But verse 80, Romans 8, verse 32, but delivered him over for us all. Delivered him over. Think about the sacrifice that he makes. Could you deliver your son? Could God, would God deliver his son? I mean, imagine... Um, being at home, your family's all tucked away, and you're there, and um, it's dark outside, and you hear a commotion. You kind of go to the front, and you, you see somebody has stuck a cross in your yard and lit it on fire, and they're hollering, and they're coming to bang on the door, and you say, what, what's going on? And they say, we want your son. What? Why? We want to kill that creep. What do you do as the dad? You say, oh, well, wait a minute, let me see if he's home. You, know, you don't go get your son. You know this is a mob. You don't know maybe who they are. It looks like a KKK rally of some sort. And they have the intent of destroying your son in your front yard. You know, you're, you're calling everybody with a gun, everybody that can come help me out. You're not trying to deliver over your son. You may even be saying, take me, but don't take my son. God not only did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over to the cross, to the scourging, to the ridicule the spitting, the shame, all that came with it, Christ delivered, was delivered over. By who? Let me show you some passages so you can, with me, feel the significance of this. Look at, I'm going to about four or five passages. Look at Galatians 3, verse 13. Galatians 3. 
Because there's sometimes some confusion about who actually delivers Christ over. And there's even some phrases from us. We get the priorities mixed up. I put him there. He's there. Um, and I did it. Galatians 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. I want you to see that Christ, is, when he's on the cross, he understands he's going to receive a curse. He's done nothing wrong, but he's going to be a curse. He's going to be the one recipient of our sin, the curse. All the sin of God's people is laid upon him. Now, let's take it a little further. Look at Acts 2. Here's where it's very plain. Acts 2, after Christ is crucified, resurrected, Peter's preaching his first sermon to men from every nation on the face of the earth, and he says this to them, Jews from every nation. Acts 2, verse 22 says, Men of Israel, listen. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. In other words, listen, I'm talking to you about Jesus, and you all know who Jesus is. He was a miracle worker. He was attested to you by God. You know he's God the Son. Listen, he says, verse 23, This man delivered over. How? By the predetermined plans, the same kind of words we're seeing over in Romans 8. This was predetermined. This was God's plan. He was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Oh yeah, we, we have a part in this. They, there were people who nailed him. There were people who put him on the cross but how did he get there? He was delivered over by the predetermined plan. By the love of God, it says. By the foreknowledge, the foreloving of God. Amazing. Look over at Matthew 26. Go back a few books. Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You all will fall away because of me. This night it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Who's the I? I will strike down the shepherd. God delivers over the shepherd, and the sheep are scattered it is Christ who is delivered by God the Father. Look at one other passage, Isaiah 53, prophesying of Christ's coming. Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, he made him sick if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord was pleased to crush him. 
God's words. Feeling the curse come upon him. God the Father knew, I'm literally going to crush my son under the weight of the sin of the world. Is there any confusion? Why did Christ hang on the cross in agony? Why did he suffer the pains of hell? It was to give us the glories of heaven. He became a son of man for the cross so that we might become the sons and daughters of God. But who, who made that happen? You know, was it, Jesus? Was it uh, Judas? Judas said, give me some money. I'll make it happen. Did Judas deliver over Christ because of greed? Was it Pilate? Pilate says, I'll give you Barabbas or Jesus. Was it Pilate who delivered over Christ for our curse? Was it the Jews because they were so envious that Christ shows up and he starts getting all the attention? Was it the Pharisees because of their pride and their arrogance? And the answer is no. It was God who delivered Christ. And in my place, condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Christ was in my place because God wanted him in my place to seal my pardon. He who did not spare his own son. See, he had a plan. Delivered him over for us all. I want you to think about that. It's called substitutionary atonement. It's called vicarious atonement. It doesn't make sense that God the Father would not spare His Son and deliver Him up unless it was for someone else. Why would you leave heaven and all of its glory to come to earth and all of its misery unless it's for someone else? For us all. Vicarious atonement. Vicarious means you're standing in someone else's place. You're doing something for someone else. Christmas doesn't make sense unless it's a vicarious atonement. Christmas is about God coming from heaven to earth. Why? For someone else. He doesn't need to do this unless it's for us all. Easter doesn't make sense unless it's vicarious, unless he's doing it for someone else. So whether you celebrate Christmas, see, our world doesn't get it. Our world, well, let's celebrate Christmas, let's celebrate Easter. And they don't get, it's not, the reason for the season is not Christ just is having fun. No, it's for us all. He who did not spare his own son delivered him up. The reason for Christmas, the reason for Easter is us all. Where he stands in our place, he was delivered for us. Doesn't make sense any other way. And that's where the text takes us. But he was delivered for us all. 
substitutionary atonement, substitutionary works of God. That if he would die in our place, there would be benefits. And what are the benefits? He says, he delivered him over for us all, so how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then the rest of the passage makes sense. If God would not spare his own son, if God would deliver him over for us all, then verse 31, who's going to stop it? Who's going who's, who's to have some words to say about us? What shall we say to these things? Like, we just, we're just oh, blown away by these things. And then he says, next question. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? If God has chosen to do this, who's going who's to stop that? He says, I have determined to love you to this degree. Who's going to stop it? He says, it's not going to be stopped. Um, verse 34, who will condemn us? Not going to happen. Because of the degree of God's love wiping away all of our sin, placing all of it upon Christ. And then verse 35, and who will separate us from this love that's been demonstrated to be so great for sinners? Will something like famine kill this love? Will persecution kill this love? Will peril kill this Lord love? Will the sword kill this love? Will principalities, will demons, will anything stop the love of God? And the answer is, absolutely can't. Because we've already seen this love is unimaginably so great. Nothing can thwart it, stop it from happening. So, he will give us all things. Now, think about, again, just the practicality of this. I, I love the illustration that God gives us in this word of a mother's love for her child. You don't see mothers typically forsake their children. Why? Because they have literally given their life for their children. We all know when a mother goes into that labor and delivery moment, there's always the risk that she will lose her life in seeking to bear another life. And it's that experience that binds mother and daughter or son together that when that child cries out mom wants to be there she's already vested she has already given her life for this child and she'll do anything within reason her powers to spare and take care of this child God has said I didn't spare Christ I delivered over Christ to give birth to you. To make you my sons and daughters. How will I not, with what I've already done, freely give you all things? You say, that makes sense. You've already given us much more than we deserve. By giving us Christ as you have in our place God has given himself for us all. Um, you know, I've thought many times how my parents used to say when I'd fall down, get all bloodied somehow, just come over here, let me kiss it, and make it all right. 
And you know how a mother would just say, let me kiss it and it'll be all right. And you would get up and do that. Because being loved that way does make things all right. I mean, it's not going to maybe stop the bleeding or heal the broken arm or whatever. But you know love heals and cures. And there's a sense in which this passage, God says, I can make all things all right. He's already said it. 828. I can work all things together for good. Just come. Let me kiss it. And make it all right. Why? Because he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not do that? How will he not freely now give you what you need to make it all right? Because he's He's all in for you by giving you his son in his righteousness. Perhaps a mother could forget her child. It's rare. God says, but even if that could happen, he says, I can't forget you. He says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. I always will remember you. I will remember you as the ones that I have given my son for. And if I have done that, how will I not also freely give you everything you possibly could need? Are you in a time of famine? I can take care of that. Are you in a time of peril? I can take care of that. Are you in a warfare? I can take care of that. Do you feel like demons are screaming at you? I can take care of that. I can take care of every need, and I will freely do so because I didn't spare my son for you, but delivered him over that you might be the sons and daughters of God. Hallelujah. What a love. What a savior that we have. Now, if you and I know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven know how to give good gifts? To us. Have we ever known such a love? What's the response? I'll give you two applications. Number one, if you have not received Christ, receive him. It says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not, catch this, with him freely give us all things? You get the gift of all things from God with Him. If you want this love, you want this grace, you want this kind of care, you must receive Christ. Because it comes only to those who are with Him. You might have seen in the news this last week, uh, all the news reports I saw wanted to show this, this wonderful astronaut woman who's been in space now for what, 350 days or something. She's broke the record of a, a woman in space that long. And they all just wanted to show her coming back to, uh, to a dog who loved her. Well, that's great. I'm glad she's got a nice dog that remembered who she was after a year. But my thinking was, why don't you talk about the fact she had to come back? She couldn't stay in space because there's no life support there. 
Why do the people who go up always come back here? Because they, if they don't come back and enter where there's air to breathe, they don't survive. They have to be with us. They have to be in a life-supporting environment. And that's what the scripture is saying of Christ. If you want all things, you have to get out of that shuttle that you're in. You have to be connected to life support. And the life support is Christ. It's with Him that you live and breathe and move and have your being. You have all the things God wants for you. That's why Scripture says in John 1 verse 12, As many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become the children of God. You get the power to be a child of God if you receive Him. Have you received Christ? You know, this is the prayer. God, I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. You can say that prayer. God, I need Jesus to be mine, and I need to be his. For as many as receive him, to them become the right. You have the right to become children of God. If you've not received Christ, Friends, I just encourage you with all the passion I have, pray that prayer right now in your heart. God, I need Christ to be mine, and I need to be yours. Because I won't get anything unless I am with him. Then I receive these things freely. Second, if you have already prayed that prayer and you have received Christ, it should give you an abundance of confidence and cast out all fear. You're, you're struggling. You don't know, you know if you're going to survive. Will famine separate you from his love? No. You've got some troubles at work or in the home, and it's, it's like a war zone. Is that going to separate you from his love? No. So you can walk through day-to-day life with confidence. You are loved and will be loved and will have everything you need. Will you ever miss heaven? No. And so it casts out, not, not only gives confidence, but it casts out fear. Can anything hurt you? And that's what the text is saying. No, not sword, not peril, not famine, not persecution, not nakedness. None of these things can hurt you. So what are you afraid of? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Do we live with great confidence? We're loved we're going to be okay. And do we live with no fear? Because God loves us in such an unbelievable way. Let's pray together. Father, what a text before us. What a love the Father has given to us that we might be called the children of God. Lord, we know it does not appear as yet what we shall be, but we know when we see him, we will be like him. That your image will be born in heaven and glory. For you have determined to conform us to the image of your son. Father, for each one in this room that's struggling with being loved, may they... May their hearts and their eyes be open to the love of God this morning. 
And may right now they be crying out by the enablement of your spirit, crying out saying, God, I need you. I need to receive Christ. And I need to be yours. Father, do that work. We know you love us. You've determined this. Draw us to yourself. And Father, let us not forget the truth before us. Let us live with great confidence in the love and fearlessness of God. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.